The Bowery Boys episode 346, The Beatles Invade New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with a show about music and screaming, Greg. Lots and lots Mm -hmm. of screaming today. Much screaming will happen because today we are talking about the Beatles. Because before... Ah! Oh, sorry. Because before BTS, before the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, before Menudo, before the Jackson 5... You had Paul, John, George, and Ringo. And today we're looking at how the Beatles became a phenomenon, one called Beatlemania. And in the U.S., New York City played a role in that, from the Ed Sullivan show to the first and possibly greatest arena show in American history, when the Beatles played Shea Stadium. The Beatles came to New York during the mid-1960s and were seen by... Tens of thousands of screaming fans and millions of television viewers while in some of New York's greatest landmarks. And each time they came through here, the city and America was a little bit different. So today we're going to give a little reintroduction to the Beatles and then look at how New York City became a part of Beatlemania, a part of their mythology up there with London and Liverpool, of course. But New York also did become a part of their music. Uh, Yeah, because near the end of our tale here, we'll also be focusing on the post-Beatles career of one member of the group in particular, and to a tragic moment in American history which united the world 40 years ago this year, on December 8th, 1980. Now, we won't be telling this story alone, because... We asked you, our listeners, if you had any stories about the Beatles in the 1960s, and boy, did you deliver. We posted on our Facebook page and got many letters and voicemails from listeners who were young Beatles fans here in New York. The very people, the very young, mostly female group who helped build the Beatlemania phenomenon. In fact, let's start the invasion of the Beatles in New York here with a recollection from a listener named Loretta, showing the links that a 12-year-old girl will go to to express her love for her favorite rock group. Hi there, I'm Loretta from Brooklyn. My friend Jeannie and I were all Beatles all the time. We were 12 years old. She loved George and I loved Paul, so we didn't get jealous of each other. We went one day to one of those places where you can get a headline printed on a fake newspaper, and I got Paul McCartney Weds Brooklyn Girl. We also dressed like them, and I looked like a fool with my beetle haircut and black turtleneck because I was a chubby kid with glasses. I used to do cartoons of the four Beatles on t-shirts, and I forged their signatures. I sold them at school and got called down to the uh, principal's office and smacked in the head. Dispatches from Britain have been talking about a new sound. For a while, we thought the new sound was Prime Minister Douglas Hume describing himself as a simple man of the soil, but that's not what they meant. Our expert in such matters is NBC News reporter Edwin Newman. 
The hottest musical group in Great Britain today is the Beatles. That's not a collection of insects, but a quartet of young men with pudding bowl haircuts and who spell Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S. They were all born during the Blitz in the Merseyside section of Liverpool, the toughest section of one of the toughest cities in the world. It's anybody's guess why the Beatles emerged from its cellar nightclubs to national prominence, but emerge they did. They've sold two and a half million records and they earned $5,000 a week. Not long ago, the Beatles arrived at London Airport after a triumphal tour of Europe and the provinces. They were greeted by their hardcore fans, the compulsive screamers, mostly female, mostly between the ages of 10 to 16. And Tom, that was a clip, believe it or not, the first appearance of the Beatles on American television in a segment on the Huntley Brinkley Report from November 18th, 1963. Listening to that report, Greg, you you hear how Edwin Newman, the, the reporter for NBC News here, had to explain to the audience back in the States who the Beatles were and what this Beatlemania thing was, you know? But just think of how much would change in those next three months, because, you know, in that clip, they are being introduced as though they are completely unknown. Yeah, um, it, unknown in the United States, right. They would become much better known here very quickly, you know, as Americans caught up. But America was also about to change in another way as well, uh, this way tragically, because this report was aired just four days before JFK was assassinated on Friday, November 22nd, 1963. So really here, the entire country would be so much different when the Beatles arrived in New York just three months later. Okay, well, really before we get started here, I feel like we need to situate the Beatles, which is actually kind of funny (laughs) because I think most people know who the Beatles are and know actually quite a lot about them. Could you give us a brief overview of really who they were, who they had become before they arrived here in New York in 1964? The Beatles, the English rock band, quite possibly the greatest rock and roll band ever, formed in 1960. And for most of its 10-year run, was composed of the same four musicians from Liverpool, England. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. It would take a few years, but once, you know, they sort of ignited, they were on fire for an entire decade. Um, From late 1962 until they arrived in New York in February of 64, their concerts in England and Hamburg, you know, elsewhere, were famously thronged with teenage girls who were screaming their lungs out and storming whatever theater or club they were performing in. And that's important to remember, you know, that Beatlemania actually started back in England. Beatlemania, like the Beatles themselves, was an import. Well, let's meet the Beatles individually here. Maybe start with John. Let's start with John Lennon. John Lennon, born in Liverpool on October 9th, 1940. He started playing guitar when he was 15 years old. He soon formed an early rock band with school pals of his that was called The Quarrymen. Uh, They played small local venues, and at one of those early concerts in 1957, he met another teenage musician named Paul McCartney. 
And was he about the same age as John Lennon? Were they were they close in age? Yeah, Paul was about two years younger than John. Paul was born on June 18th, 1942. Paul quickly joined the Quarrymen right then in 1957. In the next year, in 1958, the group would pick up another local guitar player and a singer, a friend of Paul's from the bus to school, George Harrison. They were friends from the school bus? <laughs> I mean, they're definitely young here, I guess. Well, I think it was just like a city bus to school. I don't think it was like a oh. yellow elementary school bus. But yeah, they were still young, especially especially George. Uh, George was born in 1943, so he was only 15 years old when he first auditioned for the Quarrymen. But he was an extremely talented guitarist, and finally, after some apprehension about him being too young, John let him join the group. And so all this being pre-Beatles, 1959, we've Mm -hmm. got John, Paul, and George already together, playing together. And of course, who are we missing? Stuart. Stuart Sutcliffe, a painter friend of John's, Stuart actually came up with the name Beatles, a different spelling at first, and then they called themselves the Silver Beatles. But by the summer of 1960, the group was simply calling itself the Beatles. And they toured, uh, famously spending quite a bit of time in Hamburg's seediest nightclub district, the Reeperbahn. They picked up a fifth Beatle, the drummer Pete Best, Uh, They got kicked out of Germany. They came back. They partied hard. They returned to Liverpool. I mean, they started to become (laughs) actually quite well known, at least Mm -hmm. at least locally. When did they hit it big? Well, I'm going to take some broad strokes here, um, but they they signed to Polydor Records in 1961. And the next year in 62, they hired a manager, a man named Brian Epstein, also from Liverpool, who helped them get really noticed and signed that year by producer George Martin at EMI Parlophone down in London. And the lineup here, just to keep track here, John, Paul, George, Stewart, and Pete, right? Stewart had actually quit the band back in Hamburg to focus on his studies. And quite tragically, he died actually of a brain hemorrhage while he was still very young and living in Hamburg. And Pete Best, meanwhile, was replaced in 1962 because his drumming really wasn't up to snuff. So the Beatles reached out to another local Liverpoolian, a man named Richard Starkey, who also went by Ringo Starr. And <laughs> that that summer, they'd have their first recording sessions in London at the Abbey Road Studios, where they'd record, among a few other songs, Love Me Do and Please Please Me. And that January of 63, they'd record the rest of the album. They'd release Love Me Do as their first single. And then Please Please Me, which became their first song to hit number one. Meanwhile, they were touring like crazy back in the UK, overshadowing really anybody else who they were performing with. And by this time, they were also um, dressing, you know, with their identical mop top hairdos and their smart jackets. Mm -hmm. So with the hit records and the mop tops and the cute uniform suits here, this is when Beatlemania begins, right? 1963, birth of Beatlemania here in England. Yes, because they they rocked and they bopped around on stage like, like nobody else, really, which their growing audience of young female fans really appreciated. But they were also, we shouldn't overlook the fact that they were also really talented musicians and they Mm -hmm. produced hit after hit 
So soon they were attracting these huge crowds of girls, mostly girls at their concerts. But then these crowds would also show up at the airport if ever they were taking off on a tour, which also attracted more press, which led to more airplay, you know, which led to more screaming fans and including police who were like trying to hold back the crowds up from an airport or a stage door. When they were coming back from a tour in Sweden on October 31st, 1963, they were coming into Heathrow. Now, as the author Bob Spitz explains it in his excellent biography, The Beatles, as luck would have it, Ed Sullivan and his wife Sylvia just happened to be passing through Heathrow at the same time. Ed could not believe the screaming and the commotion that he was witnessing. Was it the Queen? You know, was it, was it a member of the royal family? He asked an airport official who explained to him that it was in fact a music group called The Beatles. And Ed took out a little notebook and wrote their name down on it um, and put it back inside his jacket, thinking he might look into this when he gets back. (laughs) But they just kept putting out music because weeks later in November, their second album with the Beatles came out, which was a smash, as was their hit single, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which came out just days later. And then it was then in November that the clip that we played earlier from the Huntley Brinkley show, that's when that was first broadcast in the United States. That's right. So then how did they finally get here? Like, what were the planning steps for them to arrange this trip? Well, they needed an American label to release their music. We won't get too far down the rabbit hole of recording label drama. There's plenty of it. Let's just say that EMI's American partner, Capitol Records, out in L.A., wasn't interested, at least initially, in the Beatles. But they finally uh, made a deal with the Beatles, and they were planning a promotional campaign to properly introduce them to the U.S. But then, meanwhile, somewhat, I would say hilariously, they got scooped by a Washington, D.C. radio station. It turned out that some of the coverage on the TV had been noticed by a teenager named Marsha Albert, who begged the radio station to play I Want to Hold Your Hand, and the station managed to find an import of the single and play it, and allowed Marsha actually to introduce it on the air for them on December 17th, 1963. And the, the station immediately got swamped by fans calling in, showing their adoration for the song. So actually, this caused Capitol to to bump up the release of the single to December 27th of 1963, 10 days after that sort of impromptu radio broadcast. Mm-hmm. So between that and Ed Sullivan's kind of getting around to his notebook and booking them on a show, they headed from London out to Heathrow on February 7th, 1964, to fly off to New York City. And there at, at Heathrow, a crowd of... 4,000 fans waved them off, just proud as could be, of their Fab Four, who were now heading off to conquer America. We'll explore the Beatles in New York after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. 
take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. On the afternoon of February 7th, 1964, a Pan American Airways jetliner landed at Kennedy Airport. And ladies and gentlemen, the British invasion begins. They were met on the tarmac by 200 reporters and over 4,000 fans, most of whom were standing and screaming on the rooftop observation deck of the International Arrivals Building. There are rumors around that this is Britain's revenge for the Boston Tea Party. 3,000 screaming teenagers are at New York's Kennedy Airport to greet, you guessed it, the Beatles. This rock and roll group has taken over as the kingpins of musical appreciation among the younger element. Some music critics call their harmony unmistakably diatonic. Others say it's pandiatomic. Parents say it's just plain pandemonium. Was the airport already referred to as John F. Kennedy Airport? I mean, so so soon after his assassination. Yeah, indeed. Uh, this had been old Idlewild Airport, which has been in active operation for about 15 years at this time, a little over that. But then after Kenny's assassination, just about a month later, the name was officially changed to John F. Kennedy Airport or JFK or Kennedy Airport. But obviously the nation had been in mourning here for months. In some ways, I mean, they were they were a kind of breath of fresh air, a sort of frivolity, you know, something else to think about. Lift the spirits. They brought music and joy to the shores of America. 
Let's hear from an email from a listener, Dari from Santa Monica, sharing a story from her childhood. Dari was there on the rooftop at JFK with her friend named Vicky. The letter goes, quote, It's funny when I see the video now of us up there and I notice so many boys. I don't remember any boys being up there at all. Luckily, Vicky and I are both tall, so we can see over the shorter girls in front of us. Lots of girls have radios, and we are all listening to the music and singing along at the top of our lungs. Finally, they mention that the Beatles will be landing any minute now. It's about 1 p.m. Everyone surges forward to get as close to the railing as possible. When the plane touches down at 1.21 p.m., it's screaming, crying, chaos. Then the Beatles alight from the plane, down the ramp, and wave. You have to understand that back then, seeing these guys come from another country was akin to them literally landing from another planet. It was all so foreign and absolutely exciting. I have a very poor vision and kept asking my friend, which one is Paul? In my delusional teenage mind, when I screamed his name, he turned and waved to me. Somewhere in my memory, he really did. That is so cool that Dari was actually there to witness the Beatles' arrival. And amazing that, you know, those were the days when you could actually go up on the observation deck, too. You know, how cool. Our days of innocence here. Well, anyway, the Beatles from JFK boarded a fleet of Cadillacs and were whisked into Manhattan, you know, for the very first time of their lives to, you know, to get to their hotel and not just any hotel, of course, but the Plaza Hotel. They went straight to the top. They were staying at, you know, the jewel of New York hotels, Central Park South, 59th Street and 5th Avenue, designed by Henry Hardenberg and opened in 1907. Yeah, one of the most glamorous of New York's mini hotels. Out front of the hotel, as, as they arrived, there were, again, there were just thousands more fans surrounding the Grand Army Plaza area and that Pulitzer Fountain. That must have gone over really well with the other guests who were staying <laughs> at the plaza and paying the plaza rates. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a pricey hotel, right? Well, I mean, on top of that, you have all these kids, and some of them are actually trying to get into the hotel. So it was a total mass chaos. A recollection from our listener Anna F. quote: I snuck away after school and went to the Plaza Hotel. There were a lot of kids outside. We, of course, never actually saw them, but some of the staff would occasionally stick their heads out of a window while wearing a Beatles wig. <laughs> I stood there for maybe a half hour, then went home. I'll never forget it because I got lost in the subway. <laughs> I mean, Sorry, this gives, it gives the impression that not only did the plaza have a really playful staff, but that, mm -hmm. I mean, the city must have just been overrun by kids. Well, the following day on February 8th, John, Paul, and Ringo 
went over to Central Park to gallivant with photographers, just photographed gallivanting all over the place there. But George Harrison was back at the plaza because he had a raging fever and was sick with strep throat. Yikes, which is precisely what a beetle did not want to have upon, you know, arriving into this mayhem. And it's even worse, Tom, because, you know, they were in New York to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show, Mm. which filmed over at CBS TV Studio 50, which was an old Broadway playhouse built in the 1920s. That was, of course, also the home of The David Letterman Show and today The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And today they actually call it the Ed Sullivan Theater. Luckily, of course, by the next day, February 9th, George was well enough to join the other Beatles. And, of course, they gave two performances for Ed Sullivan that day. There was an afternoon performance, which was recorded and was set to run later in the month. But then at 8 p.m. that day, they gave a live performance broadcast to the entire nation. And there in the theater in front of over 700 very fortunate ticket holders. Oh, yeah, tell you something. I think you'll understand when I say that something. I want to And the ratings that night were just extraordinary. About 73 million viewers tuned in across the country to watch the Beatles perform. It was the largest TV audience ever recorded. Two days later, they traveled to Washington, D.C. for their first ticketed concert in the United States at the Coliseum in D.C. But then on February 12th, they were back in New York for two nights at Carnegie Hall. The Beatles at Carnegie Hall. I mean, this mm-hmm. the, this story is intersecting now with just all of these New York landmarks. They weren't fooling around, Tom. Uh, straight to uh, the they, top. They were, in fact, the first rock band to ever play Carnegie. Unfortunately, though, the band didn't like playing Carnegie Hall. It was, you know, it was not suitable for their particular brand of music. And unfortunately, it was filled with too many VIPs. Um, oh. According to Lennon later, quote, Carnegie Hall was terrible. The acoustics were terrible. And they had all these people sitting on the stage with us. And it was just like Rockefeller's children backstage. And it all got out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> was that it for them in New York in, in terms of live shows? Well, Sid Bernstein, the New York booking agent and the promoter who actually got them this Carnegie Hall gig attempted to get them also booked before they left at Madison Square Garden. But Tom, this would have been the old one in Hell's Kitchen. Right. Site of today's Worldwide Plaza. Yeah, I mean, that would have been amazing, but they they couldn't get it worked out in time. So then by February 22nd, they returned back to England. But of course, they wouldn't be gone for long. They'd be coming back that same year in 1964. They, you know, they got back home. They basically put down their bags. They filmed the movie A Hard Day's Night. Then in June, they went on a, another world tour. And then finally, then in August of the same year, they came back to the United States, visiting several different cities this time, and then arriving back in New York early morning on February of August 28th. 
Now, despite the fact that they did arrive at 3 in the morning, they were still greeted by thousands of fans at Kennedy Airport. (laughs) Talk about devotion and apparently inexhaustible. Uh, The Beatles, however, were very very exhausted. (laughs) But they couldn't go back to the plaza, okay? Because, of course... The plaza had had enough. There were too many complaints. There was too much drama. So they couldn't stay at the plaza. So instead, they stayed at the Delmonico Hotel at Park Avenue and 59th Street. The Delmonico? I've never heard of the Delmonico Hotel. In 2002, it was purchased by Donald Trump, and it was renamed the Trump Park Avenue. Oh, Well, their next two New York concerts were out in Queens at Forest Hills Stadium, uh, the former West Side Tennis Club Stadium, actually, which had been built in the 1920s. But by the 60s, it had been refitted for big music concerts. But perhaps the most notable moment about this particular visit to New York wasn't the actual concerts, but something that actually happened back at the Delmonico, Tom. For on the evening of August 28, here at the hotel, the Beatles met Bob Dylan. Oh, cool. How'd they hit it off? Quite well, in fact. Bob introduced them to marijuana. I mean, can you imagine this? Give me some grass, man. Give me some grass, Bob. Which isn't to suggest that up until this point, they had been these sort of incorruptible youth. But up until this point, they had never smoked marijuana. But it seems um, from the press reports that the scene actually at Delmonico's was every bit as crazy as the scene had been earlier that year over at the plaza. Absolutely. To quote from the Beatles Bible. 200,000 incoming calls were received by the hotel switchboard during their two-day stay. Fans stood eight deep outside, held back by barricades, unquote. Well, one person who definitely does remember the Delmonico Hotel is a listener named Maureen, who called in from New Hampshire with her recollections of the Beatles' stay at the Delmonico. Hi, boys. My name is Maureen, and I live up in Laconia, New Hampshire. But back in the summer of 1964, I was 16 years old and madly in love with Paul. My three best friends each loved a different Beatle, so that made it very convenient. (laughs) When they came to New York in August, they performed at Forest Hills, and we were lucky enough to see them. And that time, they had stayed at the plaza, I guess it was in February, and caused such a ruckus that they were not allowed back to the plaza. So Ed Sullivan lived at the Delmonico Hotel on Park Avenue. It was a residence hotel, and he got them in there. And my older brother, Michael, worked at the Delmonico. So I got to stay overnight, Thursday night, the night before the concert, and my three friends came in. We had no contact with the Beatles, but we were very, very excited. It was a wonderful summer, and... It just ended on such a great note on August 28th. And then there were the experiences of a fan named Linda W., who writes in with this recollection from Linda, quote, When the Beatles returned to New York in August of 1964, they stayed at the Delmonico Hotel. At the time, we were living in Massapequa, Long Island. My mother and stepfather went to bingo that night, and I couldn't get them out of the house fast enough. The moment they left the house, my younger sister and I ran to the phone. 
Of course, I got it first. I had memorized the Delmonico's hotel phone number by heart after calling information from a phone booth earlier that day. See, in those days, calling New York City from Long Island was considered a toll call, and the phone company charged you by the minute. I didn't care. From our rotary phone, I dialed the number. When the hotel operator answered, I said as calmly as I could, Mr. Brian Epstein, please. The operator answered, one moment, please. My heart pounded in my chest. I heard the hotel ringing the room. After two or three rings, a man with a heavy British Liverpoolian accent answered me with a, Hello! I started screaming, Paul, is that you, Paul? All I could hear was, Hello, love! My younger sister was pulling on the phone wire, and somehow, someway, the call got disconnected. Was that Paul McCartney my favorite? I can't believe that the operator actually put me through. <laughs> that is amazing. And just to clarify, so she, she asked to be th- put through to their manager, Brian Epstein. In the suite at the Delmonico. And it may have been Paul. Never know. Uh, anyway, uh, Hello, the Beatles... Love. Anyway, the Beatles hit many more American cities than touring for almost three more weeks before closing their tour on September 20th, 1964, at the Paramount Theater in Times Square. That is, today, appropriately, the home of the Hard Rock Cafe. But they were not done with New York City. Oh, no, because the next year, uh, they would arrive from London back in New York on August 13th, 1965, for a 10-concert tour, kicking off in New York at Shea Stadium. Now, it's interesting because just from in that one year, from 64 to 65, the music scene had already changed. Rock was different. The Beatles were different, you know? They had continued, shall we say, experimenting with music, but also their experiences with psychedelic drugs especially would have a pretty profound impact on their music. So then during the summer, the summer of 1965, where would they be staying now? Would they, would they return to the Delmonico? No, they'd done the Delmonico, they'd done the plaza. This time they were at the Warwick Hotel um, over on 54th and 6th Avenue, a, a hotel that had been built in 1926 by none other than William Randolph Hearst. Oh, got to get one more Hearst reference in this year. Um, And also a very underappreciated hotel. It's very beautiful. It's a beautiful hotel. By this point, it was a trendy spot. Elvis would stay there, among others. Um, And it was like, you know, a block away or a block and a half away from the Ed Sullivan Theater, which came in handy because they would be performing again. They stayed on the 33rd floor of the hotel in the governor's suite of rooms uh, while thousands of frantic fans, you know, crammed the streets outside, held held back by, you know, about 100 police officers. And they even had guards on their floor, on the 33rd floor. The next day after they arrived, uh, they headed out for their, what would be their final taping at the Ed Sullivan Theater. They got there in the morning. They rehearsed for three hours. Uh, they did a dress rehearsal in front of an audience of 700 people at 2.30 in the afternoon. And then at 8.30 that night, they taped the show in which they performed some new hits, um, including I Feel Fine, Ticket to Ride, and Paul McCartney performed his solo number, Yesterday. And that show that they taped would be aired a month later, on September 12th, 1965. But this 
intimate little audience for the Beatles. It's sort of like an amuse-bouche compared to the, the main course that they're about to see out in Queens. The, their bouche was definitely amused because, yeah, they <laughs> the very next day, they would perform out in Queens at Chase Stadium in front of a record-smashing crowd of 55,000 people. Uh, Shea Stadium was home, of course, to the Mets, um, and had just opened the previous year in April of 1964. So it was a brand sparkling new venue. And the opening of Shea Stadium was just a few days before the opening of the World's Fair, which is also coincidentally happening next door. Yeah, and it was actually still taking place here when the Beatles were performing, which is incredible, you know, because the World's Fair wouldn't close until October 17th of 1965, two months after this concert took place. Do you think Robert Moses was at the concert? (laughs) I have a feeling he was irritated by the Screaming Girls. (laughs) But here inside Chase Stadium, they had actually built a stage for the Beatles right over second base. And how did they get to Shea Stadium from the Warwick? Did they take this special World's Fair subway? I'm assuming they didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't hop on the 7 train um, at Grand Central and head over. <laughs> they they actually they drove from their hotel to Heliport from where they they boarded a helicopter and that lifted them over the skyscrapers of Midtown en route to the stadium with camera crews actually on board filming the whole thing because Ed Sullivan was in fact producing a TV special about this Shea Stadium concert, which would air in the U.S. two years later. But imagine just how nervous they must have been, you know, already. Mm. Forget the fact that they were inside a helicopter lifting off over, you know, some of these iconic skyscrapers, but heading out over the East River, approaching the stadium. And imagine the eagerness of the fans, of the 55,000 fans in Chase Stadium, waiting for the Beatles to arrive. Bob Spitz writes in his biography, quote, As they swung over the parking lot, a DJ preempted the stadium PA system, shouting, You hear that up there? Listen, it's the Beatles. They're here. The sky lit up as thousands of flashbulbs exploded. It was terrifying at first when we saw the crowd, said George, but I don't think I ever felt so exhilarated in all my life. I mean, you think the Beatles were excited. You should have, like, checked in with these tens of thousands of uncontrollable fans here in the bleachers, in the seats. Yeah, the the people who were actually behind each of those flashbulbs, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is actually something that Bonnie from Manhattan called in about. She remembers that flashing very well. Hi, this is Bonnie from Manhattan. I was at the Shea Stadium concert. I was in the upper deck behind home plate. It was a hell of an experience. Um, I mostly remember incredible noise, but the strongest impression was being able to see the entire stadium and everywhere there were flashes of light, obviously cameras. And it just went on and on and on. And the whole stadium was sparkling was quite quite a memory. Their helicopter landed at the World's Fair site. From there, the band hopped out and got into an armored car that was driven into the stadium. And there, inside the stadium, Ed Sullivan once again did the honors of introducing them, introducing them now to this throng of 55,000 fans. He said, Now, ladies and gentlemen, honored by their country, decorated 
by their queen and loved here in America. Here are the Beatles. And then the group shot out of the Mets dugout, running to the stage as Beatlemania just raged inside the stadium. A practical point here, Tom. How could anyone have heard any music or anything that was happening if there was all this screaming? I don't know that anybody did hear anything. I mean, the band could hardly hear anything. They had 50 amps that had been set up out on the field to try desperately to amplify their voices. But the music was simply getting drowned out by all the screaming. One of the people screaming was a listener named Patty, who called in from Wilmington, Delaware. My name is Patty from Wilmington, Delaware. When I was 14, I went to the Shea Stadium concert. Our seats were far up in the stands. When the Beatles came onto the field, everyone in the stadium screamed, and the screaming didn't let up throughout the concert. I did know the song they were singing, because at the end of each song, they bowed. The screams would then diminish so that we could hear the beginning of the next song, then the screams would begin again. But I didn't need to hear the music. It was enough to be breathing the same air as John, Paul, George, and Ringo, and to be with 56,000 kindred spirits. And consider that, you know, the Beatles only performed a set that lasted about 30 minutes, a 12-song routine. Because they could hardly even hear themselves sing, they were just almost giddy by the absurdity of the whole thing. At the end of the concert, they hopped back inside their armored car and shot back to the Warwick. I have to say, Greg, we got another pretty incredible letter from a listener named Sharon, who since 1963, actually, had been a fan of the uh, of the Beatles. She'd been tipped off by her cousin who lived in Manchester. So that's how she was kind of ahead of the game. But she writes that there was no question that she would be attending the August 1965 Shea Stadium concert. She writes, My mother sent a check on behalf of me and a friend, and we waited and waited and waited for the envelope to arrive with the precious tickets. It never did. I was apoplectic and near hysteria. The check had been cashed, and just a few days remained until the show. My mother called Sid Bernstein and got him on the phone and complained. He told her that he'd sent the tickets, but I did not necessarily believe that. Even if he was telling the truth, I couldn't risk the real possibility that they wouldn't arrive in time. And so I took the subway to his office. I was just 14, but mad in both senses of the word, and determined to get satisfaction. I can still recall his office like something out of a movie, old school with a glass transom and a metal desk with piles and piles of folders. I lost my cool and cried. He gave me two press passes. Ooh, VIP. And did the Beatles hit the town um, as they had done before? Well, this time they mostly stayed put and let the party actually come to their place, you know, come to their suite. But there they were visited by Bob Dylan. The Supremes swung by, you know, and saw what was going on and quickly left. Um, And then on the next day, on August 17th, they were off to Toronto, then Atlanta, Houston, Chicago, Minneapolis, Portland, L.A., where they they actually met Elvis, by the way, then San Diego, San Francisco, and then back to London. So that is 1965. That's that's the end of their appearances uh, from that year. Would they return to New York? Yes, they'd come back through the following year in 1966. 
Although when they returned, there was something new swirling around them. Controversy. Because in March of 1966, John had been interviewed by Maureen Cleave in the London Evening Standard. While he was discussing the band's incredible success, he stated, quote, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. And then later he said, Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. Yikes. The infamous we're more popular than Jesus moment, where things go a little bit south with their relationship with the press and with many Americans. Yeah, and the, the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, would, would just fall over himself, you know, trying to explain this away, especially as this statement led that summer to their albums being burned, or worse for them, being banned by radio stations. And all of this was happening, was exploding in the press just months before this this last Beatles tour in the U.S. in the summer of 1966. This tour started in Chicago in August, uh, where they held a press conference, and John was basically forced to apologize in front of the cameras. And then they toured the country, as always, surrounded by screaming fans trying to hear themselves sing. Although... Beatlemania somehow seemed to be kind of getting more intense, almost threatening in some cities. They made their way to New York on August 22nd, where again, they stayed at the Warwick. And met with the usual throng of screaming fans, I assume? Yes, although perhaps slightly fewer. You know, perhaps the controversy had actually taken a toll. At a press conference that they held there, they were asked about this. And I think that you can hear that they were kind of getting tired of touring and of the whole act. They were asked, quote, There appear to be a much smaller number of fans outside the hotel, and the concert tomorrow night at Shea Stadium is far below a sellout. How do you feel about this? John said, Very rich. <laughs> Another question, Not quite as popular as you were? John, It doesn't matter, you know. Question, do you make the same money? Paul. Well, I don't know. But the thing is, do you expect us to go on forever making more and more money, making more and more figures, bigger and bigger? You can't just go forever. I just detect a tone of jadedness, which is now kind of seeping into their press conferences here. Yeah, and also maybe just some exhaustion, you know? But they did have another performance here in New York, right? The very next day, on August 23rd, 1966, at 7.30 p.m., back out at Shea Stadium. And Greg, we got an email from Patricia Gallo Stenman, who wrote a book called Diary of a Beatlemaniac, and who traveled up from Philly with friends for that concert. Once in New York, um, they, got, they got conned by a guy who was selling fake press passes to the press conference, but then they attended the, uh, the concert out of Chase Stadium, and she still has the ticket. She describes it in her email. Chase Stadium, enter gate E, upper reserved $5, section 35, row S, seat 12. Tuesday, August 23rd, 1966, 7.30 p.m. Sid Bernstein presents, with torso shots of Paul, John, George, and Ringo, no refunds, no exchanges. She adds... I recall asking myself, who on earth would ever want to refund a Beatles ticket? 
But immediately following that concert, they boarded a flight to L.A. But, you know, as you hinted at before, something had changed here, and they, they felt it on this tour. They knew when they got to California that really this was the end of their touring days. And then they headed up to San Francisco, where they performed at Candlestick Park on August 29th, 1966, their final concert. The fact that they stopped touring freed them up to make more music, more sophisticated music. Among other things, now they could actually hear themselves. Early the next year, they released the singles Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, quickly followed by the incredible album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which, by the way, Sgt. Pepper's is a fine example of music that would be basically impossible to perform live. Imagine Sergeant Pepper's at Shea Stadium. You'd probably need as many musicians as you had fans, actually, to get that one done. Just put them in the crowds. More sophisticated music would follow. In 1967, Magical Mystery Tour, um, the Beatles would get deeper into Transcendental Meditation. 1968, the White Album would come out, which was the same year that John would leave his wife, Cynthia, for a Japanese artist named Yoko Ono, whom he had met at one of her gallery performances in London two years before. And John and Yoko would be married in 1969. 1969 also saw the release of Abbey Road, and then in 1970, the Beatles' last album, Let It Be. On December 31st, 1970, Paul McCartney formally filed paperwork to dissolve the Beatles. And so, Tom, it actually comes full circle back to the plaza. Because on December 19th, 1974, George Harrison and Paul McCartney signed the kind of final paperwork to to wrap up a lot of these loose ends, a lot of kind of the business loose ends. Uh, Ringo had already signed them and John would sign them later, but it was here at the plaza that the Beatles, as a legal entity, officially ended. But we're going to spend the rest of the show here talking mostly about John Lennon, because he would be the Beatle who would truly make New York City his home. Yeah, it seems like John's experiences in New York already up to this point had made quite an impression on him. Throughout the decade of the 70s, Lennon would transform really into many different people, many different identities, radical, an activist, an irresponsible, wild drunk at one point, then a lover and a family man, and even a homebody. But throughout this decade, he would continually declare his love for his newfound home, New York City, constantly regretting that he wasn't actually born here. One of the most famous photographs of Lennon ever taken by Bob Gruen is that of John Lennon in that New York City t-shirt. You know, he's got the New York City attitude. Quote, if I lived in Roman times, I'd have lived in Rome. Where else? Today, America is the Roman Empire and New York is Rome itself. And I suppose that New York, you know, was a far cry from Liverpool, where he and all of the others had grown up. He was now one of the most famous people on the planet. But here in New York, he could walk down the street and do the things that normal people do and, you know, not get bothered. Which is funny. I mean, it shows how 
the scene had changed. I guess with the demise of Beatlemania, he could now he was now free to sort of be a normal person in this big city. And a big part of his New York experience, of course, was his life with Yoko Ono, who was heavily involved in New York's avant-garde art scene. She had even lived in Tribeca as a young woman as that downtown art scene was, you know, was truly taking off. And we should note that, the, you know, the British press, which isn't always the kindest to its subjects, no. gave them some pretty scathing coverage, especially Yoko. Was it was this one of the reasons why they were so eager to leave London and to move to New York? Well, yeah, I mean, they didn't they, they didn't want to live around all of that. Uh, the New York press world was quite different. And plus, you know, Yoko had all these cool connections in New York. She had such a great list of friends, like Warhol, Allen Ginsberg. In fact, John and Yoko's first apartment in the West Village was at 105 Bank Street. And they lived there between 1971 and 73. Well, their next door neighbor was her friend and mentor, John Cage. John Cage. So by this point, John John Lennon has come pretty far from I want to hold your hand. Teeny bopper no more. Precisely. I mean, having access to this world you know, really opened his potential for more complicated art, but also to activism. You know, he got really heavily involved in the anti-war movement. He began making friends with radicals like Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman making himself, of course, a target for right-wing politicians who attempted to deport him and always keeping him under constant FBI surveillance. Fears of deportation, and that must have also bonded him in some ways even closer to New York. I mean, the fact that the city could have also been taken away from him. You know, they lived uh, under constant fear of this. By 1973, late 73, they did need a change of pace, and they did feel like they needed some more security. So they moved uptown to the Dakota Apartments on the Upper West Side. Now, earlier this year, we did visit the Dakota in another show about another iconic entertainer who made the Dakota her home, our show on Lauren Bacall. And the, the Dakota is located at Central Park West and 72nd and opened in 1884. And who was the architect of the Dakota but a certain Henry Hardenberg who had designed what other building in our story? (laughs) I believe that would be their first hotel in the city, the Plaza Hotel. Yeah, isn't it weird that there's a Henry Hardenberg connection? I wonder if, if John Lennon was Henry Hardenberg in a past life or something. I'm sure that if you listen to any of their later songs on like, you know, a slower speed and backwards, you might even hear oh, yes. the name Henry Hardenberg lived here. <laughs> there's some back masking. Well, well, anyway, I'm, I'm going to speed through uh, Lennon's so-called Lost Weekend, which was a period after he had moved into the Dakota, where he had actually separated with Yoko. He lived out in L.A., was heavily involved with drugs and alcohol. But speeding forward to the late 1974, he was beginning to clean up his act, so to speak, uh, in time for an extraordinary performance on November 28th of 1974 at Madison Square Garden. And I mean like the Madison Square Garden that we know today on 32nd Street. 
a legendary night at the arena and a concert which would be Lennon's last live musical appearance. The guest of Elton John. Two legends performing mm-hmm. together here. But also it illustrates how how much different his life was now. I mean, well, he's performing in sequence or with the B-sequined John, <laughs> Elton John. That is a far cry from, you know, the old mop tops and, and tight suits over at Ed Sullivan's. Two different styles, and you realize how kind of long Lennon has been gone from this quickly evolving scene. Uh, according to the New York Times, quote, when Mr. Lennon came on, the garden was transformed. Not that the crowd hadn't given every indication of loving Mr. John and his music, but with Mr. Lennon, there was an electricity that sparked through the crowd long after Mr. Lennon had left the stage. I love these formalities of the New York Times. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Lennon, Mr. John. The two of them sang three songs together, one more rapturously received than the last. Uh, I'd like to thank Elton and the boys for having me on tonight. We're trying to think of a number to finish off with so that I could get out of here and be sick. And we thought we'd do another, a number of an older, strange fiancé of mine. Oh, Paul. This is one I never sang. It's an old Beatle number, and we just about know it. Did he just say, I'm sorry, did he just say that he's about to get sick? Yes. Believe it or not, John Lennon was utterly frightened to perform, you know, in this particular venue, in this particular way. He hadn't moved on from creating music, of course, but, you know, he had moved on from this level of fame and attention. So soon after this, he reconciled with Yoko, and they really did settle into kind of a quieter, more stable life, especially by October 9th, 1975, when their son, Sean, was born. So then heading here into the late 70s, we see this different John Lennon and Mm -hmm. Yoko Ono. We see a much quieter family man. Yeah, I mean, they did go to Studio 54 now and then, but for the most part, he enjoyed a more languid lifestyle. You would even see him, you know, just roaming around the neighborhood. They were just like normal folks. You know, in particular, he and Yoko frequented uh, this place, Cafe La Fortuna on West 71st. It's no longer there, but it was like one of their favorite places to eat when they went out. But mostly they would stay at home, baking bread, He loved baking bread, raising his son, and, you know, all the while buying many apartments here at the Dakota. Wait, I'm sorry, baking bread and what? Buying up apartments? (laughs) Yes, because over the years, they actually bought five different apartments at the Dakota. So they had two on the seventh floor, two seventh floor apartments. They had another one for storage. Could you imagine that? Then a work studio uh, for Yoko. And then a fifth apartment for guests. Oh, and by the way, Tom, you'll love this as a, as a, as a, as a father. Uh, Lennon was really into play dates in the building, so he would often visit other residences in the Dakota so their children could meet and play. Amazing. And I've heard that, f- that Lennon actually started the first mommy blog. 
flash forward to the year 1980, uh, when John turned 40 years old on October 9th, and he and Yoko marked that occasion by recording an album together. He had, you know, he hadn't been in the studio for many years. They recorded an album called Double Fantasy, which was released in November of 1980. To promote that album in Rolling Stone on December 8th, 1980, Annie Leibowitz photographed John and Yoko in their apartment here at the Dakota in this now very famous photograph of them with Yoko fully dressed and John, who's kind of rolled up, who's naked and rolled up in a ball right next to her and kissing her. And that, that photograph was taken on December 8th, 1980. Yes. Now, that evening, they were returning from a recording session at the record plant down on West 44th Street when they headed into the Dakota and passed a man on the street, a man named Mark David Chapman. Chapman shot Lennon five times. Lennon was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, where he died on arrival there. But I wanted to look at this moment not from their perspective, but from our perspective, from the perspective of his fans and his admirers, because it's beautifully put in this brand new book about Lennon by Leslie Ann Jones called The Search for John Lennon. Quote, were you in America at the time? Were you one of the 20 million viewers at home watching the New England Patriots Miami Dolphin game on ABC's Monday Night Football? that commentator Howard Cosell interrupted to deliver the bombshell that John had been shot. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous perhaps of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival to go back to the game after that news flash, which in duty found we had to take. Frank? Might you have been one of the thousands who headed up to the Upper West Side to join the vigil? Or were you stuck elsewhere in the world, tuning in during the aftermath to watch throngs of grief-stricken fans sinking in mud in Central Park, threading flowers to the Dakota railings, wailing... Give peace a chance. On December 14th, in lieu of a funeral, Yoko asked for those who wanted to remember him to offer a 10-minute moment of silence at precisely 2 p.m. The silent vigil, the prayers for John Lennon's soul, as requested by his widow Yoko Ono, ended after 10 minutes, as did simultaneous tributes around the world. I talked with some of those gathered about their thoughts during the silent period. A little bit of my life died with him today. I um, prayed for his soul, as Yoko asked. He believed in peace, you know, and what can I say? Just look around you, it tells it all. And I'd like to see, hopefully, maybe gun control could be the result of this so that death won't be totally in vain. I was also more curious about little ones really knowing who John Lennon was, how much of his impact from the 60s went back like to eight-year-olds and, you know, nine-year-olds, if, if they still knew who he was. At the silent period, I thought if he were here, he'd be happy, you know. 
In Central Park, John Habrick, News 4 Manhattan. Thousands and thousands of people flocked to the Dakota to pay their respects. And in fact, today, across from the Dakota at 72nd Street, you will find in Central Park, Strawberry Fields. Which is still a celebration of John Lennon's life. It's there across from the Dakota where Yoko Ono lives to this day. And, you know, is really a great focal point for all things Beatles, honestly, in New York City. And it's a beautiful place. Well, as for the other three surviving Beatles during the 1980s and 90s, you know, we got, you know, new interesting things from all of them. McCartney went from Wings with Linda in the 1970s to duets with Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson in the 80s. With George Harrison, we got the classic collaboration, The Traveling Wilburys, by the way, with Bob Dylan, among other legends. And of course, Ringo, well, he was the narrator and conductor of Thomas the Tank Engine and Shining Time Station. Which any toddler, let me tell you, can tell you all about. Everybody loves Thomas, and I love Ringo. (laughs) Yes, me too. On November 12th, 2001, so in a very, very traumatized city, George, Ringo, and Paul had lunch together in George's hotel room for the last time. This was their last meeting. Harrison died of lung cancer on November 29th, 2001. And today, doesn't Paul live in New York? Yes, he has a residence on Fifth Avenue, and he has delighted New Yorkers with concert appearances over the years. In fact, Tom, in 2018, did you know that he played a secret surprise concert at Vanderbilt Hall in Grand Central Terminal? And it was such attendees as Meryl Streep and Jimmy Fallon. Wait, what happened to our invites? They, they obviously got lost in the mail. <laughs> and, and what about Ringo? Well, Ringo is still touring. I mean, well, I mean, I guess, you know, when we can actually have concerts again, he will resume touring. Tom, in fact, I just checked his website and he's actually booked for uh, some shows in the summer in 2021, booked actually at the glamorous Beacon Theater in the Upper West Side, believe it or not. So everyone, let's all get vaccinated. Everyone wear your masks, everyone social distance so that we can get over this damn thing and so that we can go see Ringo next summer. Amen, Greg. Amen. And why don't we wrap this up, Greg, with two more messages from our listeners. The first is a is a letter that we received from Angela from Brooklyn, New York. And then we also have a voicemail from Judy from North Carolina. Quote, I was around 12 when A Hard Day's Night was released. My 13-year-old cousin and I went to see it at a theater in City Line, Brooklyn. Back in the day, you could stay in the theater and see the movie as many times as you wanted. We stayed in the theater from noon until around 6 or 7 p.m., screaming our heads off until we heard my uncle's voice yelling out our names. God knows how over these hysterics. Needless to say, our eyes were completely puffy from crying over Paul and completely hoarse. Hi, this is Judy calling from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I grew up in New York City, and in the summer of 1966, when we were 12, my best friend Laura and I headed downtown on the subway to meet the Beatles. 
We had a plan that was less than foolproof, but after waiting outside with other fans for a couple of hours, we walked into the lobby of the Warwick Hotel ready to go. At the reception desk, we caught the clerk's attention and I announced, we're here to interview the Beatles for our school paper. Unsurprisingly, we were immediately, though politely, turned away. The funny thing is, I don't remember being disappointed. I remember being happy. The Beatles were in our city, Laura and I had made the pilgrimage together, and maybe that was good enough. You can visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we will have some images related to the show. You can also find us on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at BoweryBoys. Big thanks to our listeners who really stepped up and provided us with their memories of Beatlemania. Thank you so much for reaching out. Also, thank you to our patrons who support us on patreon.com slash boweryboys. It's only because of you and your support that Greg and I are able to produce the Bowery Boys every two weeks with a new show. Awaiting you over at your official Patreon feed is our latest episode of the Barry Boys Movie Club, exploring the New York City history behind the film When Harry Met Sally. Again, that is at patreon.com slash Boys. By the way, if you want more juicy, fabulous New York City music history from the 1960s, we encourage you to head out to the New York Historical Society, where their show on Bill Graham is still running, and it actually does connect with the Beatles story in a couple cases, but it's a really extraordinary story about rock and roll in New York and through the the prism of this wonderful man who's really associated with the Jefferson Airplane, but also with this East Village venue called Fillmore East. The show Bill Graham and the Rock and Roll Revolution is running through January 3rd, 2021 at the New York Historical Society. You can find out more about that at nyhistory.org. You can also join us at Bowery Boys Walks. We have amazing new tours, including our Christmas and holiday tour. Those tours are running through December, along with the Fifth Avenue Mansions Tour, the Greenwich Village Tour, Edith Wharton, and two new tours, the gay bars that are gone, and also the East Village since the 1950s tours. So, exciting things. Join us over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thanks very much for joining us. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Rock on. Rock on.